Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Cyril, massive, um, massive welcome to the show. To, to the show <laughs> so happy to be here thank you so much i cannot wait i cannot wait to share all my experience Good. so then you have an amazing experience on the water yes yes and it's and and your next i didn't say then but your next goal is to kayak the atlantic so you'll be the first person to kayak not not row folks to kayak in a one-man craft across the atlantic that's a hell of an under. I mean, you know, so, normally people yeah. take a ship for that kind of thing. I'll yeah, do it with. <laughs> I'll do it with three other people, and that's that's going to be tough. But to be alone, it's it's amazing. Um, yeah. And you'll be the first person to have crossed two oceans. Then is right. that correct? So um, Alexander Doba, he's a Polish man who crossed three times the Atlantic already in a kayak. I'll be the first one to do two different oceans. And and if I if I may correct you, I'm on the Guinness World Record book. I'm registered the first one to kayak uh, from California to Hawaii, the Mid Pacific, which is correct because I'm I was human powered, the first one human powered. But there's this amazing man called Ed, Ed Gillette, who was American man who crossed from California to Hawaii the same distance on a kayak in 1987. And the only difference is that at some point he used a kite. And you have to imagine. The boldness and the, ma the the maverick that he is, and he's still alive, to be you know thinking he could do it on a regular kayak. So what I did is nothing compared to what he did. But indeed, I'm the first one to kayak the Mid Pacific. I'll be kayaking the the Atlantic and hopefully other oceans because I just love it. There's something when you talked about spirituality of being in the ocean, and um, I'm just being cold. I want to do that again and again. So we'll see what life has for me, but uh, yeah, I hope to, to be able to do in this in the water at the same time as you in December twenty twenty four in eleven months. Yes, right? we'll be on the water together. When you go past us, like I say, we're gonna we're gonna borrow <laughs> borrow a cup of sugar from you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be the other way around. I'm really slow, but I, I actually enjoy it. Well, the thing is. There's very few times in life, especially this hectic modern life that so many of us now are trying to really manage and contain and control that you actually get time to be present in the moment, mm -hmm. you know, in the beauty of nature, not thinking about the future, not thinking about the past, just in that moment. And um, I guess being in the middle of an ocean is you know, you, you couldn't be more present. So, yes, it's correct. And, and what's funny is that my first crossing, which was in 2016, the same crossing that you will do, it, that means a four-man rowing team. I did not reach that point, uh, that spirituality, because we were going for the Guinness record. We were all athletes, like two hours on, two hours off. Let's go, let's push. We got this other crew. And I didn't reach that moment of feeling the oneness in the ocean. 
Now, I did feel it when I was alone because my mindset was completely different. When I was kayaking, it was for the adventure. It was not for the record. Right? Yeah, you have a Guinness record. It's a chair on the top. I actually don't care at all about this. The, this moment happened halfway point when I thought it was going to be a relief because every day that happens is going to be one day less to get to the target, right? And I actually had estimated my crossing to be 70 days, but I reached halfway point 50 days in. That means there would be another 50 days. And it was mentally, it was really, really hard. And my only way to cope with the fact that there was going to be another 50 days, which means coping with the ration and the food, uh, you know, less intake in food, my water maker broke and I had to go through because there's no turning around. The only way to cope with this was that mentality of saying, you know what, I have to live in the moment. The goal is not to get to Hawaii anymore. The goal is to live the journey. And that's when I got to the point where you said, which is so true, is which you can read it in books of Buddhism and be in the moment, be present. It's the presence, right? You can read it all, all the, as many times as you want. You have to feel it. And I felt it that time where the past really didn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. The future doesn't matter because it's not there. It's only the present moment. And I got to that spiritual point, which lasted the rest of the trip which was just amazing. So Cyril, I've noticed quite a trend over the years because I've, I feel very satisfied. I always say I've achieved all my goals. I still mm -hmm. have plans, but you know, I always just, I see what I want to do. I make the plan and I go and do it. What I've realized is not everyone's like me. However, they still want to do it. So yeah. what can we say for people out there? What is it that sets people apart? The people that see their adventures to the end, you know, they initiate, mm -hmm. they plan, they initiate, and yeah. then they see it through. And maybe they fail because failure is a big part of our learning curve and that that's fine. But what is it that sets people apart? that that actually do it um i think at the very origin of all you have to feel that inner fire and what i mean is that that instinct it's 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 the guts that says i need to do this like this is my call and it doesn't matter if that call is to start painting take pictures of butterfly around the world start running a marathon with your 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 buddies or have a meal every week with your with your parents whatever it is you have to feel like i love this i want to do more of this and you have to feel it like you can't want it halfway usually that's how passion works the passion is is when it actually aches not to do it right and and that's a positive aching like i would wake up at four o'clock in the morning do spreadsheet i would be up not obsessed but yeah i want to do this why? I don't really know. And I can't really explain it to other people. But the fact that you're going through it is, can I have this vision that other people don't see? And a lot of people get deterred by other people's opinions, right? And, and I explain it like this. And it's the same when you're an entrepreneur and you have, you have this vision of creating something. Other people don't see what you see. It's a vision. It's blurred. And even yourself, it's kind of blurred. But you feel it, right? And a project is like a puzzle. It's not like a line where we think, okay, you do step one and then you do step two and step three and they're linear. 
you know, it's like a puzzle where you see a piece, you put it there, and then you see another piece in it. And then suddenly you start to see the face of a person, and then you put another piece, and then the vision that you had in mind from the beginning comes into place. And then other people can see the picture and say, oh, but, and, and when I arrived in, in Hawaii, when I, when I saw land, I see the video and, and then by looking at it again, I understood that this was exactly that because I said, I knew it. I knew it, you know, and it's kind of like the realization that I had a vision and I knew it before anybody else before. And the problem I think with anybody's endeavor that doesn't come to fruition is because they get influenced by other people's lack of vision because obviously they don't have it, their own interest and their own interest could be very close and loving. It could be your partner in life. It could be your kids saying, you're not doing this. You could die. You know, wh why would you do this? You don't have the money right now. You have a job. Why? You know, all these reasons are valid. And the, the, I mean, you have to juggle all these pieces together to make it come to fruition because I, I think you need to do it to yourself. Why? It's because if you don't do it, you know, that's when you could have regrets and you don't want to have any regrets in life. You have to go for your guts. And, and I think that's when you find your purpose. That's when you find this one thing that will make you like valid on earth, so to speak. That one thing that will make your passage on this earth uh, worthwhile. Because once you realize that you, you feel this inner fire and you make it happen, things happen. Like you create energies, you feel great, you radiate energies around you. And that makes a better world just like that. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, it does. Is Did I see, was this your second attempt? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, are we, uh, can I ask what happened on the, on the first one, if you don't mind talking about it? Or... Right, of course. Yeah, you talked about you know, the difference between rowing and kayaking. There's been 800 crossing and rowing boats, uh, and 230 were solo. Okay? Now, if you look at solo kayaks, before me, there were, had only been four. So I did a lot of work, a lot of homework and research and what, you know, studying all the past endeavors, but there's not many kayakers. So what I did is I called Peter Bray, he's a British man who crossed for, in the North Atlantic from Canada to Ireland in, um, in, in a solo kayak. And I called him and said, Peter, can you tell me about your boat? And I, sp I spoke to Ed Gillette who crossed the Mid-Pacific. I spoke to Scott Donaldson who crossed the Tasman Sea from, from Australia to New Zealand. All of these had two attempts. Peter Bray did two attempts. Scott Donaldson did three attempts. And the reason is there's no blueprint. You create a boat, you build it, you study it, and, and you make it safe as possible, you know, self-rightening and, and the right gear, the same place, a cabin at the right spot. There's no blueprint. And you could read all the books you want, talk to all the people that have done it before. You can listen to all the podcasts until you have your ass, excuse my French, in the kayak on a storm, you don't know what that is. You don't know what it is to be alone in that little cabin that is so tight, looks like a coffin. You don't know what it is, like how your mind can um, be um, getting, you know, elevating itself to the occasion. You can do all the mental training you want. You can have all the experience. You know what I mean? And I was just overwhelmed by the situation. After six days, I left from the Golden Gate Bridge. And the weather went from bad to worse day three. 
and it was 35 knots of wind gusting 40 big waves big swell big current and my sea anchor which is the the parachute that we put at the end of the boat um in those kind of storms just waited out for three days i was stuck in the cabin attached to my chest my sea anchor the retrieving line got stuck in the rudder and it did various loops and it, it collapsed so the parachute collapsed and it doesn't do does it do it work and instead of putting the boat perpendicular to the waves it went sideways and these made the waves just bang on the boat and then i felt really unsafe i felt trapped i felt like this was wrong and then my cockpit got swamped by water and i couldn't the bailer didn't work and then my communication with the land support was not as fluid as it was because there was a big trough. So it would take 30 minutes before I could text my... I got overwhelmed and I called the, the rescue. And that was the right thing to do at the time. I was not ready. Now, I thought I was ready when I left, right? And it was a lot of work. It took me a year to get like, okay, I need to get ready. What does that mean? I wasn't ready. You know, I thought I was. I wasn't ready. Let's do it. Train better do better, um, you know, boat modification, all this, it's experience, you know, and then I finally took off again and it took me 91 days to get there. Hmm. Cyril, you might need to speak up a bit. Your, um, okay. Your, your voice is dropping down a bit. Um, okay. Cyril, how do you go from an idea to put the plan in action, can you give us an idea? What's like the first thing do you do? Are you is it fundraising or do you write stuff down? I think it's everybody's different. And to your point earlier, there's some people that go through and some people that that don't. And I think the main thing is you have to understand the way you are. There's all different kinds of personalities that can do anything. You just have to understand who you are. Now, for me, I'm very planning. Planification is good. I'm going to start with an Excel sheet. I'm going to start with a fire, like I was telling you. I need to feel this. Like, what do I want to do? At first, I research. Everybody's just done it before. And, and second, I get inspired and inspired and inspired by books and talking to people. And suddenly, you know, the, I believe, and that's the key point. I believe that I have a shot at doing it myself. Like, you could say, yeah, I'm going to cross the ocean and but you have to feel it to your core that you can actually do it, right? We're talking about an ocean, but it could be uh, climbing a mountain and swimming across channel or whatnot. You have to believe it to your core. And once that's there, everybody's different. If you're more spontaneous, you could call it, hey, whatever this person, can you help me? Or the, if you're a more plan, like engineer kind of type, you're going to do that. Here's my budget, line after line after line, you know. It doesn't matter what your personality type, and that's very crucial. Anybody can do it the way they want. You just have to do it a little bit of time every day and don't let the dream stop. Do you, Cyril, did you prefer to be solo or did did you enjoy it equally in the team? I preferred solo, I think, because I just I was in in, in control of all the parameters. As a team, it was a great experience. I loved it. And I'm competitive at heart. But for me, it was all about the experience and the adventure and feeling the oneness. And, you know, there's a point in, in my first crossing when I could see a bird flying and then, look at this beautiful bird. Whoa. 
And I would stop rowing, and the guy say, hey, stop, stopping, keep rowing, let's go. I said, yeah, but, you know, and then I was a little bit frustrated in this. And the second one, if I wanted to stop two hours and look at the dolphins that were around me, I would do that. If I just wanted to, you know, push more because the conditions were right, but then I were going to stop because, hey, I need a rest, like physically, mentally, I can't, you know. I Like I was in control of the, all the parameters, and for me, uh, feeling the oneness and my, my position in the world and f- feeling the waves and the swell and looking at, you know, every little beauty of the ocean was more important to me. So I guess to your point, to your question, the, the, the one solo was the one I preferred. Although it's not a given, I'm an extrovert. I love people. And like, if I were to look at a sunrise on my own, yeah, it's beautiful. If there's somebody that I love next to me and we could share it, look at that beautiful colors, look at this. I feel like I enjoy it more. But what was funny is that actually, it was deeper for me when it was just myself. Because I took it all in. I took it all in. Cyril, when you're doing your public speaking, which must be fascinating to, to listen to your story, what is the single most question that I, I think I have an idea? Um, what, what's, what's the most often asked question that you get? I think it's why. Um, people will ask you, why do you want to do something? before you've done it. And then they'll ask you how, after you've done it. And I think, can you hear the roosters? I'm in Hawaii right now, so the roosters uh, are. <laughs> if I had the headphones on, I, I probably uh, could. Um, I think people don't understand why. Why would you want to do something like this? Why would you risk your life and leave the comfort of your home? Why, you know, are you, hiding something are you searching for something are you trying to prove to something to yourself or to others like this why which is really hard to understand i think it's a combination of your your past experience in life and maybe some childhood psych childhood psychology or maybe just personality type it's all combined that makes me want to do this um yeah i can't really understand uh, explain the why um, the other question is uh, how did you poop <laughs> that's a big when one I, when I ran I ran the length of the country one time and uh, that was just the most asked question where where do you go to the toilet <laughs> where do you think yeah actually so here's the thing back back to the first one which is the why I, do I ask you why do you love your wife or your husband? Like, how do you explain that you love your wife? Well, you know, she's uh, doing this and that. She's no, no. I mean, it's a feeling. It's a feeling. It's a gut feeling that I love to do this and I want to do more of it and more and more. Listen, I only started kayaking when I was thirty-two. I never. I was not like a kayaker or an ocean rower or ocean sailor. Like, I wish I could say, you know, I started sailing when I was five-year-old with my... No, no, no. I started kayaking when I was 32. And I was 42 when I decided I was going to go into that journey. So, it took me only 10 years. And that's a good message I'd like to say also to your, your speakers. And in general, when I talk is, I started late. 
There, it's never too late to start. Because, yeah, usually you see that kid, he's 25, he's been playing music and he sings really great and can play the guitar like crazy. He's been playing for 10 years, so you're like 45. You say, well, I can't start playing guitar. Why not? When you'll be 55, you'll have 10 years of guitar just like him. He has 10 years now. And if it's what motivates you, okay, don't play for anybody else. If you like to play the guitar, just because it brings you that peace, just because it's like your meditation, do that. Yeah, I was going to say, um, so I'm 54 and uh, I'm, I'm going to get my black belt in kickboxing. Fantastic. <laughs> I've just decided, and uh, when I've done that, th then I'll then I'll learn piano. <laughs> Do this, um, but yeah, no, I'm being serious. I'm 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 really excited actually about the kickboxing. I've, it's just I, Cyril, I always have the dream, and I never kill my own dream. You know, never. I always just leave 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 it somewhere around here, and then one day, boom! It, it the time is right. Not yeah. that, you know, we shouldn't always wait for the time, right? But I just mean, I get the circumstances come good. Right, let's do it. And uh, yes. Um, so, Cyril, is there, how do I say? I'm always kind of, you know, on this show, we're a bit fascinated about people's childhoods. Did, did you have a sort of, you know, a good childhood or a tough childhood i had a beautiful childhood uh the the one that i would recommend that i would wish to everybody on earth my parents were loving parents still married to this time on a small village five thousand inhabitants i would cycle to school we're five kids in the family i'm number two we love each other to death i was very very lucky for this and this was my roots this was my ground. And until 18, that's what it was. It's just good, good relationship with my parents and my brothers and my siblings and the, the friends, very loving. And I could add this energy that I could give away freely without being hurt. And I'm, I'm really thankful for this. And then at 18, I found my wings. I needed to go away. I needed to travel the world. I, so I lived a year in Arkansas in the US as an exchange student program at 18. And then I loved to live overseas and learning another language, see the world with a different filter of the culture. So then I decided to come back to Europe and, and do a, a international studies. So I did a master's degree in international business. I was a year in Oxford, England, a year in Madrid, Spain, a year in Paris. And then I moved to Italy for two years. And then I did a trip around the world for one year backpacking. And I had this, I just wanted to travel. Then I moved to Brazil for six months. And then I found a job in France for a year, but I didn't like it too much. Then I, I moved to Argentina for two years for another company in the wine business. And all this, so all through all my experiences, what, that was my roots and then my wings. And my wings was like, I want to do this. And then, you know, it didn't really make sense. Like reasonable, didn't make sense. I had a master's degree in international business. I should be working for a bank or M&A and get my first BMW like all my friends. No, I wanted to go to Brazil because I, I loved speaking Portuguese. I loved the culture. I want to play soccer there or football, you know? And, and does it make sense? Not really. It's not reasonable. You, you can't talk to me with reasonable in the same sentence. <laughs> and I don't care. It's all of that loving life. 
And you got into kayaking, you know, I don't want to say late on in life, but but at 32, what what gave you the dream of the Pacific? Um, little by little, um, I started this, uh, it was actually canoeing. Uh, they have these types of canoe called outrigger canoe, uh, Polynesian mm-hmm. canoes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're from all the Polynesian islands. So, you know, it's this one six-man boat with a float on the side. You might have seen them online. It's outrigger canoe, six-man. We call them OC6, outrigger canoe six. And I started that in San Francisco. This friend of mine, Tevito from Fiji, said, Cyril, you to come. And let's go paddle together. So I started this, canoeing, really. And did all local races, an hour, two hours. And then, you know, I wasn't really, I've never been really just the athletes, very gifted. So I did races of an hour and a half, two hours. And then the holy grail was to do that race in Hawaii called the Molokai Hoe, from the island of Molokai all the way to Honolulu. It's uh, 43 miles. It's about six hours. And I was like, okay, let's do this. It's going to be great. And I hit the wall after four hours of paddling. I had trained my ass, but it's four hours, you hit the wall, and then you pass the wall, and then you find something quite amazing on the other side, which is what? My body's resilient. My mind you know, enabled me to keep going when I thought it was done, and I finished there, and I called the feeling it was such a blast. It was such a blast, and I wanted to do that again. So I did that race four times. I was 43 miles. And then I did another race. It was 100 miles. Um, it was down the Sacramento River. Different kind of paddling, but it's a river canoe. Still paddling, but a different boat. And it took me 12 hours. And I love this. And then the little thing was a friend. Hey, there's this race in Canada, guys. It's 400 miles. It's called the Yukon River Crest, 444 miles. That's going to be like 50 hours of paddling. Can we do this? I don't know, but how we train for this? Let's ask people who's done it before. before. And... That was maybe five years after I started paddling. We did that race, got second place out of 400, but because we went the competitive ways. And, and then you learn about nutrition, about the right gear, about the right technique, and about the right mentality. How do you change the perspective so that the hardship becomes actually fun? Uh, and, and I finished the race, loved it, loved it. Say, how do we do that again? And the other guys who were more, more experienced paddlers didn't do as well. They ached physically. Maybe they had too much muscles. I had the right lean muscle. And I said, well, maybe that's it. You know, ultra endurance events. That's Maybe that's my thing because I love it. And I did that race three times on a six-man canoe, on a four-man canoe, and, and, and on a two-man canoe. Every time was a blast. And then I stumbled upon this website, maybe just like you did, from Chris Martin called the that race was the Great Pacific Race. Great Pacific Race? Are you kidding me? And that's not canoeing. It's rowing. I didn't know how to row. So I called Chris in England, and he said, yeah, we're going from Monterey to Hawaii. It's going to be every two years, blah, blah, blah. You got to find a boat, but I could teach you. You know, you will teach. It's all about the mental. You don't need to learn how to row, obviously. So I started to get into a boat and skull on the river. And then it was too light of a boat. So I bought this little fishing boat and I built a rowing seats on it. And then I was in the bay. And little did you know, and four years later, the first two years, I actually couldn't find the money. So I had to put in another two years. But you know what they say is the ocean will always be there. 
And going back to your point of the timing has to be right. Don't let your dream die. The timing has to be right. Sometimes it's not. Mm. Two years later, got a stellar crew. And we, we got to Hawaii. I loved it. And then I said, okay, never again. This is crazy. This is too hard. But the dream comes again. I read books. Hey, and, and then I was starting kayaking in uh, this uh, boat called Surfski. The Surfski are this type of kayaks that are very performance oriented, very TP, but very fun. Any kind of little surf, little bump, you go and you're fat. So I was paddling surf ski for like two years. And I said, what, what, what are the other guys that have done crossing kayaks? I could take all the experience I've had in the gear and the navigation and the offshore living that I've done in my first crossing and put it in the kayak. And then, it, you know, you get it little by little. Incredible. It's Chris Martin. So friends at home, Chris Martin and another friend of mine, fellow fellow Marine, Mick Dawson, oh, the, first, the first pair to row, row the whole of the Pacific from America to Japan. The opposite, from Japan to America. Uh, sorry, sorry, Japan yeah. to uh, San Francisco. And it's Chris. It's Chris's company that that uh, are supporting us to to do our trip in uh, December. So it's a small world. Yeah, he's a beautiful man, and I love Mick Dawson too. You know, those guys are adventurers at heart, and they will enable you to reach your potential. So you're in very, very good hands with Chris and and Mick. Mick's a great guy, but. Just don't ever lend him any money. <laughs> Why? You're, you're never going to see that again. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's my he's my Marines brother, so I can I I can say that. Um, so I don't really want to talk about this because it's not it's it's definitely. Although I want to be prepared for it, it's not gonna. I don't want to focus my energy on it. But what what are the dangers, Cyril? In, in this kind of venture? Well, uh, the, the ocean is, uh, is mighty, very strong. It's, um, it could be from flat to very, very wild. So the biggest uh, problem would be to be separated from your boat. Right? If you fall, then you can't swim fast enough and you would be lost at sea. Even with a team of four, there's been stories of one paddler or rower falling in the water and the guys saw it. The time to turn around, you lose sight of that person. So be attached at all time. And that was uh, something that I would follow to the letter. It doesn't matter if it's flat as one mistake. You know, there's sleep deprivation, there's exhaustion, there's mistakes that are made, you know, a little, little something, you fall in the water, that's it. So, I would be attached at all times, and I know you will. Uh, the other things is is managing uh, your body, your mind, and and your emotions. So it's those three components. Um, you'll be fine if we're you're with a team of of pairs that care for you. You will learn, and 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 I'm sure you will be there for them as well. I think um, it's crucial to have a team where you have the same objectives. And the one which would be arriving as brothers and being there for each other, I think should be key. 
Now, the other dangers would be storms, but there's, there's measures to mitigate the storms. There's the sea anchor that I talked about. Um, there's knowing your boat, and uh, by m- m- knowing your boat is, is knowing what it is physically. What, how does it work? What are the dynamics of the boat on the waves? But also knowing who, who do you have on your boat. There's moments when you have a stellar crew, you have to push and go, and there's moments you want to rest. So that knowing when to rest and when to push is really important as well. Um, Brilliant. Brilliant mm-hmm. advice. I, that I was thinking so much that, you know, we're going to set off and we, we've no, well, I mean, it's obvious when you get, when you get crews that they're too loud and it's all, they're going to be the fastest and, and they, it, it kind of goes wrong for them. And yeah. We're just going to set off and see how it goes. And if the weather's in our favor and it's all going okay, then we might put the power on a bit. But um, yes, but also the, you know, you want to enjoy it. And talking of enjoyment, what, one of my favorite books, probably my favorite, was um, Contiki Expedition, mm-hmm. Tor Heyerdahl. Yeah, how can you read that book and not want to cross an ocean? <laughs> yes. Uh, and and so friends at home, this was um uh I think it was six uh Norwegians and a Swedish guy, uh Torstein Rabbi, and they'd all come off the back of the Second World War and these guys were living up in the Norwegian forest. They were living on, you know, like moss and and stuff while they while they watched on the German shipping and you, you can say they were hard, hard men. And, 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 uh, Tor Heyerdahl, he, he put out a, um, a telegram that you had in those days before, before any, you know, internet and international telephones and this kind of stuff. And he just said, you know, expedition to cross the Pacific on a raft, likelihood of survival, not, None. not very much. <laughs> and, and, Torstein Rabbi, and I love this. He just replied, I'm in. Mm. <laughs> and um, I think the ocean has changed them because they saw an abundance of wildlife. They, they could physically pull the sharks onto their raft with, with their hands because they were swimming. There were so many swimming so close to the raft and stuff. But what... Um, what was your experience of the wildlife, Cyril? Um, <clears throat> I left from uh, the Bay of Monterey. Monterey is a, is a wildlife sanctuary, and that's where a lot of animals come to feed. So it was just the first three, four days. A lot, like like school of 50 dolphins following me when I took off. And then whales for four or five days. Um, it was just fantastic. Now, I've got a special relationship with birds. For some reason, I feel like birds are just amazing creatures, and especially on the ocean. I've seen a bird every day, almost almost every day. And you think about it, in the 90 days, that's three months at sea, and you see birds in the middle of the... So my, my crossing was the mid-Pacific, right? It's not the full Pacific. The mid-Pacific is 
you could see on your right shoulder from California to Hawaii, there's a lot of ocean to keep going. You could go all the way to Australia. But when you're in the middle of that, you're far from land. <laughs> and <laughs> you see birds that are flying day in and day out. You're like, this is so amazing. And it's just a bird, right? When you see it on land, it's just a bird. It's like a seagull. When you see it over there, you understand their amazing ability to adapt and to feed themselves and to fly hours and hours and not get lost. It's just wonderful. Like, mm. wonderful. Wonderful. And then you feel that sense of wonder comes along their responsibility of taking care for the, of them and their environment. Because the other point is, once you cross the ocean, you see, and you do see, it's so sad, the plastic that is floating around, that is man-made. So, we do feel, I do feel to my core now, the sense of responsibility of taking care of, of them through a better practice of, of, of less pollution, right, on, back on land. Because if you imagine a world with no human, the world would actually be, be probably better off, right? All the animals would be balanced. So we do have a responsibility to take care of these beautiful creatures. Um, they're, just, they're just wonderful. And then you find, once you're alone for 90 days, there's no human being. There's, so these creatures that are alive become your friends. They're more than friends. Like you feel the oneness with them. Like we are the same. It could be a sunfish coming alone. It could be a, um, you know, a shrimp coming, like a blue, blue shrimp coming up on, on the boat. Or even the clouds, you feel the oneness with the clouds. And, 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 and I wish for everybody to feel that at some point in their life. And let's talk about the boat, Cyril. So it looks an incredible craft. Um, it looks, they look really, really cool. Did, was there many blueprints already available for, 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 for your boat? Or did you have to have one specially designed and, and, and try it out? Uh, yes, it's custom built by uh, this amazing man, another Englishman, uh, Rob Filoy. And Rob uh, had built the boat for Peter Bray in 2001. And I called Peter and she said, yeah, my boat was great. Never capsized. They're really safe. You should talk to Rob. So I called Rob uh, Filoy. It's F-E-L-O-Y. And I called Rob and I found his phone number somewhere. And I said, Rob, would you build me a boat? Uh, let's brainstorm on how we can improve on the boat that Peter Bray had. And, and, and Rob said, listen, Cyril, that was in 2001. That was 20 years ago. I don't have a, a, <laughs> a shop anymore. I'm retired. And uh, I guess after a few calls, I must have been convincing enough that he said, okay, Cyril, I'll build, I'll build that boat for you. That'll be the, my last one. So he worked with a, a, a mar maritime designer, you know, on improving the shape, improving some features that I wanted to have, and uh, and, and there was off. I we had the the first design that I put on my website, and then that's like a little company. You know how it is. I had I had the design, so then I had the website, then I had the PowerPoint presentation, then I started to go to sponsors, and this is the boat I'm starting to build, and and then and then the project's alive, and yeah, it was built. 
in the winter of 2019. And her, now it, her name is uh, Valentine, per my sister. I told you oh, we were beautiful. five kids, only one girl. So Valentine is the name of the boat. Beautiful. And I guess being self-writing is, is a, a big design feature. Yes. Um, I'm an adventurer at heart. I'm not, uh, I don't want to die. I'm not crazy. I don't like some people, the, the very first Maverick I had a little bit of craziness in their mind to be, you know, Edgelette. When I look at his boat, wanting to cross that mighty ocean, it's like, what? This is, in fact, in his book, the book that I recommend everybody to read called The Pacific Alone, he says, had I done that truth 10 times, I would have made it five times. I read it the other way. There's 50% of chance of not making it. That was not good for me. For me, I've got two kids. I love life to the fullest. I've got so many adventures I want to do. My, the primary feature of my boat was going to be safety. And I said, I don't care if the boat is going to be slower. I want it to be safe. That means self-writing. That means having the right ballast. ballast. That means having the good shape, having you know all this. And it was indeed, it is indeed a very s slow boat. I would do, you know, maybe 20 miles, nautical miles per day actively, and maybe five if the current were right during the night, because I was not paddle at night for safety. I would be attached at all times. Safety was a primary component. Cyril, you've gone a bit, a bit quiet again. <clears throat> not, no problem. Just thought I'd say. Um, yeah. And. I bet everyone's fascinated to know. Can you um, and can I just say thank you to Gary at home? Gary very kindly just um donated to the channel. Uh, he's left a message. We are the guardians of life. Stay true to your dreams. Uh, we all we all have them. Thank you, Gary. Uh, you summed it up perfectly. I love it. Thank you, Gary. That's amazing. And so, yes, sleeping. Are you able to just switch off when you do, do? Do you do you have to practice being able to switch off and sleep? Are you worried about ships coming down on you or the a storm building while you're asleep or yep. going off 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 course and losing you know losing uh, kilometers? Yeah, there's no. Um, it was a decision of mine. Uh, not to paddle at night, just for safety. It's really dark. If there's no moon, it's dark. If it's cloudy, there's it's dark. You don't see the waves coming, so it's a it's it could be dangerous. So I said, from the sunset to the sunrise, I would not be out on the boat. I would be inside. Now, as to sleeping, it's a it's a kayak, so it rocks and rolls much more than a rowing boat, and I have to be sometimes attached when it rolls too much. And I can't really sleep more than an hour at a time. Uh, and the reason is, like you said, there's a lot of container ships. Uh, you want to be you know, aware of what your position is on the water if you're in the middle of a container lane. So I would have the right gear. I have this uh, equipment called the AIS, Automatic Identification System, that's broadcast my position. And it's using a radio wave. So it's, it's only up to 20 miles um, around me as a radius. And I can also see the other container ships. Um, and when you, it's very easy. You have a plotter, you click on the button, you see a little ship coming and you see the speed of that boat. So what I would do is I know the container ship go about 15 to 20 miles an hour. 
um, and I can see up to 20 miles. So if I don't see anything in that radius of 20 miles, that means I'm clear for an hour. So I could sleep for an hour, wake up an hour later. Look, I'm clear for another hour, I'll sleep again. And you can't really train that. You're, you're so sleep deprived that you just pass out. You're so tired. Now, the dreams become wild. Um, you, it's hard to make a difference between reality. Like you wake up, you know, what, what is going on? You're like, am I, where am I? <laughs> and, and then after days, after days of being alone, you get accustomed. It's, it's quite interesting to see how you get accustomed of drifting and not knowing where you go. At first, you're like, well, where am I? In the end, if there's no um, boat coming your way, it doesn't really matter where you are. If, whether you drift in the right direction or the wrong direction just means you're going to paddle or row more the next day. That's it. You know, if there's no danger, you're fine. And, and all this goes into like building that experience at night. But in general, I didn't like night times because on the boat, the waves like reverberate against the carbon fiber of my boat and make it, it's very noisy. And any kind of noise, you can hear it. And you say, what is that noise? It wasn't here yesterday. What is that? And then your mind could go in and think, you know, very fast. You could think you have to control your mind at all times. And night is, is, is I didn't like it. But what's funny is here, when I was inside the cabin, I felt safe in my cocoon. It was great. And then it was stormy outside. There's no way I was going to go outside where I'd be wet and cold and miserable, right? But the opposite is true. Once I was outside, I could see what was going on. You know, I could see the waves coming and I was cold and, and wet, but I was fine. I didn't want to go back in the cabin where I would not be in control in the environment. So I guess sometimes you, you just have to, okay, make the jump, change the environment from inside the cabin to outside and adapt, adapt, adapt. And Cyril, um, what is your choice of food and drink um for me the food uh, no matter what you taste it taste is is it has to be diverse um you have to look for calories so the first one is freeze-dried meals because they're light and you can rehydrate them and and then still have those calories um i had a little uh heater to, to boil water, but I never used it for the 90 days just because I was just too afraid. And the only place that was flat was between my legs and I was so afraid of getting burned. Um, and also the taking it out of the cabin would mean that I would have to open the hatch and it was like turning my back, etc. I was complicated. So I just decided to eat cold for the 90 days, just rehydrate the, with water. Um, and then I liked... Um, um, like sausages because it was fat and it was easy to eat. Like, just eat. Uh, I wish I could have had cheese. Obviously, I'm a Frenchman, but uh, that wouldn't last long. So <laughs> that was for you know my first meal when I got got there. Um, no, it's it's. Uh, I think diversity is important. I would have even little olives, these little packs of fifteen olives. I would love that because it was fresh. It was not meals. Obviously, I had bars and you know uh, you know peanuts and, and almonds. And um, I'm not too much of a sweet tooth, so I didn't have Nutella or you know, you know all these sweet things. What I liked is actually something that was very bland. I loved oatmeal. I loved rice. And now that 
spicy teriyaki or chicken something. And I like curry, but in, in general, spices I didn't like. I like something very bland. You know, even spaghetti with tomato, that's it. Um, anything that is freeze-dried meal with meats, I didn't really like. I thought the meat that is freeze-dried is never really good. So I'd rather have a vegetarian meal and then have the meats on the side, you know, like uh, beef jerky or things like that. But there's something I had, which was from a brand. I don't know if we can name brands, but here in the US, there's one big brand that makes these fish. And the fish comes in an aluminum pouch. And that fish was a pleasure. It was like so good. I had it for my birthday. I turned 46 on the water and I kept it. It was just like heaven. So... (laughs) Did you have any fish come on the boat? Oh, yeah. I had one that I actually didn't know about for after a week. So I just had the smell grow a little by little. And then what is that gooey thing on the bottom of the boat? And it was that fish, a flying fish that I jumped and then was somewhere. And could be a problem because it just makes it everything gooey. And I have my barefoot in, in the water. So it's not really good for bacteria or all that stuff. So I cleaned the boat, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, those flying fish, when you were talking about the wildlife, were, were also amazing. You have like 50 flying fish taking off at the same time because the, the tuna is chasing them from the bottom. And then you have the frigate birds and then the other birds trying to catch the flying fish in the air as you know they're escaping the bottom and they get caught. It's beautiful. It was National Geographic. It was so beautiful. And I was going so slow that I couldn't enjoy it all. Yeah, I'm going to, I'll row like this. <laughs> then the fish can go straight in then. <laughs> um, So the last thing, um, oh, no, no, no. I have to ask a Frenchman, did, did you have your morning coffee? No, I'm a coffee. I drink coffee every day. It's part of my ritual. But again, it's funny. I had my, my, uh, freeze, freeze coffee, you know, those ins- instantaneous ones. Yeah. I never did it. Never did it. And I had it. I never did it because it would, in, in, you know, take boiling water, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's funny. A lot of, a lot of people ask me, yeah, but wouldn't that, you know, pick up your mood and make it feel great? I got into the discipline of making miles. I wanted to, um, be very thoughtful of what I would do at each moment. And for me, some, I don't know, I didn't need it. And I felt like losing half an hour and doing that extra mile, extra mile and a half that I could have done was more worthwhile for me. Um, and, and you'll see it. It's, it's quite funny that uh, how we become disciplined to a routine that we establish for ourselves. And I was told by another rower that you have to actually look at it because the moment you start slacking is the moment you stop brushing your teeth, the moment you stop putting your dry clothes away, the moment you don't make water when you should be making water is when things start to go wrong. So I was really on top of that, on top of hygiene. Every time I'd go back in the cabin, I would wipe myself with a baby wipe, removing all the salt because I didn't want those salt sores. Hygiene was crucial to me. So in the end, the pleasure of having coffee was always secondary. It's choices you make. In your 
in your row and your kayak what what do you wear on you know for for shorts or do you do you not wear them oh yeah i was always wearing something some people wear naked are naked i don't um what my trick is to have one piece of underwear per week so i actually have two that are brand new at per week so one that i will row in and there are the kinds that dry very fast uh seamless and i would row with them and as soon as I would, I would go back in the cabin, I would switch to a dry pair of underwear. That would be the one for the cabin. So I would, you know, wipe it with baby wipes, put the that cream, that antibacterial, um, and I would buy, put my dry underwear. And then vice versa. I would not use that underwear. And when I would go rowing again, I would take the other one. But I would switch it. Some people wash them. But you can never wash it perfectly. You can never dry them perfectly because it's salt. Salt goes everywhere. I think there's so much pleasure in opening that little bag and having a dry, perfectly, un- perfect underwear to wear. It's such a pleasure that, and it doesn't take much room. So, you know, if you're rowing, well, it's going to take you 30 days. I take 10 pairs of underwear, do that. How much water does your uh, machine make for you a day? Is it uh, like so, plenty, plenty yeah. enough? Plenty. Uh, the water maker I had uh, is a Ketadine power survivor that is electric, and it, I would need about four liters per day, so a gallon. Um, but that machine broke after forty-six days. Uh, the engine broke, and and that's probably my mistake i have to say my first attempt i was rescued after six days and there was water in the compartment where the water maker was so i rinsed it off i cleaned it i once i was back on land i did i thought i did a good job servicing it and before i left the second time i turned it on it was looking great but somehow there must have been salt water in the engine and after 40 days it just died on me so then my backup was to do it manually I had the another catadine that was really good that all the you know rowers have as a backup it just takes two hours i'm wrestling this little lever and just you know make water and i would still make my four liters of water a day but it would take two hours on top of my my paddling because i would not stop paddling for to make water you know my 10 hours a day minimum were my set in fact it's an advice that i give you for instance you need to have a a goal that is achievable no matter what Uh, some people say i want to do 50 miles a day that's our goal we're going to row and paddle to do that but then there's good days bad days there's stormy days where you're going to do 30 miles there's flat days where there's no wind you're going to do those 30 miles other days you're going to do 70 and that could touch your mental mentality, right? But if you if your goal is something you could do, whether it's flat or stormy, and I'm going to paddle and do my best for ten hours a day, then you're always right, okay? And and I had this custom, this habit of doing that ten hours a day, it's five hours in the morning, an hour break at lunch, just to break the day in two, sleep a little bit, make water when the sun was the highest. And it would not drain my batteries. And then another five hours. Now, I could do another one hour or two if the conditions were amazing. 
But in general, I would take those two hours to make water, look at the sunset, enjoy the moment, and then get ready for night. Cyril, how is it for your children? Uh, can I ask how old they are? Oliver is 18 and Simon is 15. Oh, so they're not, they're not that young. I mean, I mean, they're kind of old enough to sort of. Does it does it affect does it affect them or or are they sort of mentally well, prepared for this? Well, they they saw me like taking our on bigger and bigger challenges. You know, it was ten years ago, so they were eight and five, and you know, five at the time. So they saw me, I think, and, and it was it's what dad does goes yeah, on adventures. Okay. You know, so uh, I don't think it affected them negatively um i think what was hard is i mentioned it earlier i i divorced from my ex-wife at some point we had such a different view of looking at life for me i was teaching my children that anything is possible if you really put your heart to it and if that's what life is calling for you to do something risky but you go and thrive and then you become a better person through that you know, it's. I thought it was good to teach my children that. For her, and I understand it completely. It's like, why would you risk yourself? You have a job. You know, you have a responsibility not to die for your kids. You have to responsibly for their, you know, uh, schooling and all that, and be there for them. So we had, a, you know, completely different outlook on on the adventure itself. And there's no right or wrong. It's just I think the fact that if I were not to listen to that call. And I, I, I'd say it's a call because I really, it was in my guts. I wanted to do this. Um, I, would, I would pass by my own life. Um, and I guess it's funny, the kids, you know, they, they have their own view of everything. I, when I cut my first, it was in 2016, so almost eight years ago, I was in the book, the Guinness book, and I said, guys, look at that, I'm in the book. And I, you know, Again, I don't take it too seriously, but it's kind of funny. Well, they didn't care at all. Well, they looked like they preferred the woman with the longest nail in the world. <laughs> we used to read that book as kids at school. I know. We love Go it. to the yeah. library, get that book out, look at the. I mean, it was one of the books, all the. You know, I, yeah, I, the I mean, tallest I, man. <laughs> yeah. To, to, to be in there as an adult must be. Um, yeah. Must be. That's <laughs> great. Fun. Yeah, yeah, little dreams like that that come true. I, I, I think that's amazing. That's amazing. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.